Well, uh, welcome to uh, the first of uh, what will be a series of um, uh, speaking um, lectures over this next year. Um, so I hope everybody got um, a heads up about what's coming up next month. Um, for Women's History Month, we're inviting uh, Fabiola Carrion, who is the Director of Reproductive and Sexual Health for the National Health Law Program, um, next month, uh, Saturday, March 9th. And so I hope you can join us for that. Um, one thing that I don't have up here, but I want to let you know about, uh, as part of Black History Month, um, we are celebrating Mardi Gras on Tuesday night with a traditional pancake uh, Tuesday sort of thing. Uh, and if you feel bad about eating you know, bread and sugar, uh, we're going to have quiche as well. Um, and then a live jazz trio will be playing. And then for a suggested donation of 10 bucks, um, all of the money that we raise will go to support the Green Line Housing Foundation, uh, whose mission is to support um, African-American people to get into homes to create gener generational wealth that redlining restricted from them. So um, it's, a, it's a great cause. Um, I make, it's not just like normal pancakes. It's, you know, banana, walnut, and I'm going to probably do bananas foster too, and apple cinnamon and blueberry and like whatever you can eat. So uh, it's really good. So I hope you can come out and join us. That's at six o'clock on Tuesday night um, for, for uh, Mardi Gras. Um, but tonight, I'm, I'm really happy to introduce you to Andre Henry. Uh, we will be having a conversation together for, you know, 45 minutes or so. Um, and then we'll open up uh, the floor that if you have your questions that you would like to ask Andre um, to, to discuss. And so my hope is that in the midst of this, that we would come to this space with open minds, open hearts, that we might be able to hear and listen and find that we are welcomed into a greater sense of what it means to be part of our communities, part of humanity, and then within that, uh, people who stand for justice and uh, make that work re real for people. So uh, my name's Kyle Sears. I'm the pastor at La Cunada Congregational Church. I know many of you guys are uh, already, so I'm glad to see you here. Um, Andre, I thought as we get started, um, if I, I love the book, um, I, I thought that the authenticity just kind of shined through. Um, and you you talk a lot in there about this apocalypse and and waking up, and I, I I love that metaphor. And so my question for you is is as you were waking up to the reality of racial injustice, was that like a sudden jolt, like, a, like an alarm going off, or was it more like that, you know, the gentle nudging of a loving parent, you know, slowly waking you from slumber? How would you, how would you talk about that experience of, of waking up and, and what that did for you? Yeah, so, um, you know, I noticed early on that I'm black, <laughs> early on in life, and, um, so I say that to say that part of waking up to racial injustice was, you know, you know, they say that by the time you're four years old, you already know what kind of world that you live in. I have a friend that works with children. Her name is Britt Hawth Hawthorne. And she talked about how, you know, nine-year-old children, you know, will talk to her, will try to name things that are happening to them, how they're being treated differently at school or whatnot. And so that was also my experience, you know, being young. I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where the Ku Klux, where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn um, on, on Stone Mountain. <laughs> um, and so I noticed um, that, you know, uh, walking into the gas station to buy some candy that the shop owners were 
more attentive to me and my brother, right? Or that um, the teachers at school were harsher, you know, things like that. But the thing is when you're a child and you try to name a truth that adults are not ready to face is they train you not to talk that way, right? So it's like, it, that, that's impolite, right? That's wrong, right? You know, we don't, we don't say the word racism. We don't play the race card. So I would say that there was a, a miseducation, right? That is partly, that was partly through school <laughs> um, because, you know, the connection between uh, America's economic greatness and slavery was never, those dots were never connected in school, right? And then also at church, which was mostly, you know, the white folks at church saying to me, if I named, you know, these these microaggressions, the language that I have now, that they would say, no, 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 we don't talk like that, or, you know, we don't play the race card or whatnot. What happens when enough people do that, especially as, especially as a kid, you know, you trust the adults in your life. So if they tell you that's not what it is, it must be something else, then eventually you start saying, oh, well, that's maybe not. So I remember looking back in hindsight, I remember being a child and being very upset about racism. We can come back to that about how that's even possible, but I remember being a child and being very upset about racism. And I remember being a teenager and being in college and having an idea that, yes, racism is real, it's a thing, it still exists. That was undeniable because I experienced it, my brother, my mother, my father, you know, who came as immigrants from Jamaica, we experienced it. For example, when I was maybe around nine or 10, we had a next door neighbor who was the pastor of the church up the street and also a higher up in the Ku Klux Klan. And he pulled a shotgun on my brother for walking our dog through the neighborhood. So I knew that type of racism existed, but I didn't understand, you know, when we, talk, when we say systemic racism, I didn't even have that language until I moved to New York City later on in life. So I had some idea of this extreme form of anti-black hatred existed. And juxtaposed with that is the idea that America is fundamentally good, fundament, fundamentally fair. We mostly eliminated most racism, but there's still some ignorant people out there. So I, I kind of want to set that up, you know, as a prelude to, you know, what waking up was like, because there came a shift around the time when Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman um, in 2012. And I remember how I thought about this. I wrote a blog about that actually when it happened. And no, 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 sorry, it wasn't about that, but it was around the same time that this had happened that <laughs> the guy from Duck Dynasty, I don't remember his name, Robertson, he had said something racist or and dumb in the GQ magazine. And I remember writing a blog where based on the common sense that I had, I kind of defended him. Like, I didn't say, like, this guy's completely right, 
but he said something like growing up, black people around him were happy. Now, mind you, I don't know how old he is right now, but when within his lifetime, right, when he was a young man, Nina Simone wrote Mississippi Goddamn. So black people couldn't have been too happy around him, right? But me and my ignorance, I'm going, well, maybe that was his experience. Maybe the black people around him were actually happy. It hadn't occurred to me that no, like it was a terrible time for us to be alive in this country and he was ignorant to it. I didn't have that. So I, I began waking up around Trayvon Martin because I knew that what happened to Trayvon Martin could have happened to me. But I didn't have language for it and I didn't know the history to back it up. It was just an intuition based on the experiences that I'd had. But by that time I was living in New York and the difference between living in New York and living in Stone Mountain is that in Stone Mountain, you say something is racist and everybody says, how could you, you know? In New York, you say something is racist and people say, yeah, that was racism. I was stopped and frisked. So it was like the height of the stop and frisk era when I lived in New York. And so I was stopped and frisked maybe three times in a year. And um, I remember uh, nearly being arrested for standing in the in New York City. I don't know. I, I don't mean to explain anything that y'all know already. But for those of you who have not lived in New York City, let's say that this is the crosswalk, right? We don't wait over here on the curb <laughs> for the light to turn. <laughs> you know for the for the white for the little white man to tell us that we could cross the street we stand down here in the crosswalk so a police officer singles me out and like i was almost arrested for standing here with everybody else you know um there were different occasions like that i remember i applied for an apartment in harlem on craigslist and when i talked to the guy on on the phone he was like so excited to to talk to me he says to me I don't meet many decent people out here in a historically black neighborhood. And he even offers to be my friend over the phone. And when I finally walked up to meet him in person, I saw the look of, I saw his face melt with disappointment when he finally saw me because he didn't think that I was black. <laughs> and I didn't get the apartment. And so it was stuff like that that started to kind of chip away at this idea that America is a fundamentally fair place if you follow the law, if you stay out of trouble, if you work hard, you know, you won't have to worry about these things. It was <laughs> becoming abundantly clear with, you know, these experiences like that. I think it was... Now, between Trayvon Martin and, and the time where I said, okay, I can't take anymore, there was Eric Garner, there was, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on Freddie Gray. There was, not, not yet. Because <laughs> 2014 to 2015, there were a number out there. But was, when Philando Castile came, it was like the moment where I just couldn't take it anymore. The head scratching of white people saying, I wonder why this happened. <laughs> I was like, we know why it, ha why it happened. I used to say like, I felt like, you know those children's shows like 
Blue's Clues. And it's like, Steve is like, can you find the green sock? And the green sock is right over Steve's shoulder. <laughs> and like, it takes him five minutes to just look this way. And I'm like, it's the racism, guys. It's, the, it's, the, it's right there. And that was when I decided that I needed to learn about systemic racism was Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Corinne Gaines, you know, Philando Castile was the, the watershed moment. This is what it was like waking up though. Because before then, I thought, I still had this idea that racism, I didn't know what systemic racism was. I probably heard that word systemic for the first time in 2014. And I was like, I was in church actually. There was a conversation about racism at my church. And there were three black women <laughs> that decided that we needed to have this event about whiteness because it was after Freddie, it was after Eric Garner was killed because I was living in New York when Eric Garner was killed. So, and actually not very far from where Eric Garner was killed. So, and I remember them talking about systemic racism and it's like, it's just above my head what they're talking about. I get the experiences that they're talking about but the theoretical part, the societal part, is just something I'm not able to grasp. So when Philando Castile was killed, that's when I said, I need to learn. What are they talking about? And this is, this is the part, I know this is a very long way to answer your question. <clears throat> to learn about the history of racism in America is to unlearn the official story that America tells about itself. And that is a very hard thing to do because our brains literally don't know the difference between someone telling, telling you something that conflicts with a deeply held belief of yours and being chased by a bear in the woods. Your brain does not know the difference. So when you have to confront a deeply held belief, something you've been taught all your life, it feels like you are in mortal danger. So, <laughs> Dr. King has a really interesting quote near the end of his life. He's in, a, he's in an interview with David Halberstam, I think is how you say his last name, from ABC in 1967. And Dr. King says, you know, I used to think that you, we could solve this issue of racism with a little bit of reform here and a little bit of reform there. <laughs> Dr. King says this. And he said, I realize now that you, we have to overhaul the whole society. We need a revolution of values. I say that to say that I think a lot of people think they wanna get involved with changing the world and then they realize how deep the rabbit hole actually goes. And that's what I thought when I said I need to learn everything I can about systemic racism because I began to see that there is something in the foundation of how America was built, right? That made it fundamentally unequal. And that was so hard to face. As a kid, I was in like those patriotic shows at church wearing my old Navy American flag t-shirt, breakdancing on stage, 
singing proud to be an American or calling the new Americans or whatever. I was proud to be American. But the apocalypse I talk about, which, you know, in biblically, the, the word apocalypse just means revelation. It just means to uncover, to unveil something. The, the other side to that is that that unveiling of the world as it is, as you see in, in Revelation, what John is doing in Revelation is pulling the veil off of the imperial ideology of Rome. Rome says that we are bringing peace to the world and the whole world will know peace under Caesar's rule. But the truth is Caesar's armies are going into countries and raising places of worship to the ground, burning the countryside, dragging people out of their homes, and subjugating them to Roman rule. And so what John is doing is saying, look at Caesar. He's a multi-headed beast, right? That's what I felt like was happening as I was reading about the history of racism in America, is that this the beautiful ideals that we held, that we hold that I don't think that we have to throw away just have not been true. And so I spent many days, the more that I read, the more that I studied, I spent many days like literally on the floor just weeping about how deep the rabbit hole goes, how big and resilient and multifaceted this problem is and the sense of betrayal, of feeling like I have been lied to. Well, and, you know, I, I appreciated in the book how you also bring out that, you know, as you confront this reality and then constantly reminded of it, you know, with every police shooting, um, that anger then becomes something very familiar to you. Um, and, and how, how that anger is necessary when you see that deep injustice, like to, to say, well, but, but man, chill out, <laughs> be nice, you know? And so I'm, I'm interested in like, one, how, how did you come to, especially, you know, with, with your background of faith where we, we tend to like shun anger and negative emotions as being, you know, ungodly or whatever. Um, so I'm interested in how you kind of gave yourself permission to be angry, but then also um, what, what's angering you lately that, that is, you know, because I mean, again, I think there's this multi-headed beast, like you're saying, you know, it's, it's a monster. And so we got to do everything. We can't do everything. So where are you saying this is where my energy has to go? Um, yeah, that is a really... That's a really great question. So I remember when I was young, my mom, you know, she would spank us, you know. She didn't know better. <laughs> she would spank us and she would, you know, you do something wrong. I think I already broke one of her coffee mugs or something, you know, you get a spanking. And she hit you with the belt and then she said, don't you cry. <laughs> I'll give you something to cry for. You just did, <laughs> right? But America is kind of like that, you know. That is what oppression looks like. It is to say, I do not want to deal with 
the predictable, understandable reaction that you will have to my bullying you, mm-hmm. you know. And so I say that to say that, you know, America, and not just America, but we're talking about racism. So America does that. We don't want to know about the anger that black people feel from suffering centuries of anti-black violence and anti-black hatred. I talk about in the book how there is this kind of systemic gaslighting saying, oh, I don't know where this anger comes from. Couldn't possibly be from the fact that this country is founded on and fueled by anti-black violence, you know, that we stole trillions of dollars worth of labor from African people and then allegedly set them free without giving them a dime to compensate them, compensate them for that labor and then created a legal system where they were second-class citizens. And, you know, like, I can't imagine why these people are angry. And then if we show that anger, then the tr- there's, the, there's a trope of the angry black man or the angry black woman that is meant to discipline us to keep us from showing that anger, you know, all of that. And so I felt, I felt, I felt like that was a threat when I first started speaking up about racism, that if I didn't keep my voice down, if I didn't speak politely, if I didn't talk nicely, that people would dismiss, dismiss me as an angry black man. What I learned was that speaking nicely to the white friends that I couldn't keep in the book was that speaking nicely actually made no difference. My tone made no difference. In fact, if I tried to hold in the feelings that I had, the what you called negative feelings, right? That that anger, it just made it easier for them to dismiss me and exit the conversation. So I, I realized, well, if it doesn't matter, <laughs> if it doesn't matter if I, if I say it like I'm angry or not, then I may as well say it like I feel it, right? And what really gave me permission to do that was studying because America wants black people to only know about one black freedom fighter, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they only want for us to know a certain version of Dr. King. So I started studying and number one, I started reading James Baldwin. And Baldwin had a way of writing about white supremacy in a way that was clear concise, no, clear, incisive, and livid at the same time, and but was also dignified and eloquent, and not that you have to be any of those things, but I just loved encountering that mix of things in Baldwin's writing, and I remember feeling, as I was reading Baldwin saying, wait, can we talk like this? Because... Because I kind of want to talk like this. And then I came across Stokely Carmichael. And especially, I think, when Stokely Carmichael kind of refashions himself in the image of Kwame Ture. 
I've always wondered, like, when, I'm still trying to figure out when Stokely Carmichael decided that he was going to talk like, and like a distinguished African grandpa, you know, like, cause, but he did the same thing. He's, he was very direct, very clear. Fannie Lou Hamer and Dr. King, the, one of my favorite, one of my favorite messages from Dr. King is called Let My People Go. He's talking about apartheid in South Africa. And you know, Africa has for a long time been the sub subject of anti-black stigma. People talking about Africa as a, a wild, dangerous place with savages, you know, it's inhabited by savages and not human beings. In fact, Hegel once said that Africa had no history before white people came there. And so Dr. King is addressing this, kind of the stigma as people are talking about South Africa. And Dr. King in his speech, Let My People Go says, there are fantastic beasts in Africa, fantastic savages in Africa, but they are not black. They are the white minority that rule South Africa. And I said, I didn't know Dr. People think that they would love Dr. King. This is why he was the most hated man in America when he died because he also spoke with this conciseness, this directness, this honesty, and it was reading and seeing, you know, that anger has always been a tool, you know, that can be used for, libera for our liberation and telling the truth that made me feel like, oh, well, I'm gonna do that. Furthermore, it's a healthy response to when your dignity is being, <laughs> is being attacked. To, it is a healthy response to be angry about that <laughs> because that means that first off, you know what's happening to you and you are in a position to do something about that. You know, anger is energy, you know, and it's useful energy to, it's useful energy for protecting yourself, for pursuing a goal, and like I write about in the book that the flip side of anger is a vision of tomorrow, which is like the first step in pursuing a, a different future, is having a vision for the kind of world that you want to create. If you are angry about this thing, it's probably because you feel like it shouldn't be that way. Underneath that, <laughs> means that you might have some idea of how things should be, right? And so you can follow that anger from this should not be happening to, well, what should be happening, right? And so I'm not surprised that a nation that was founded on the logic of inequality, on anti-black violence, does not want those same people embracing and digging into the anger that they have. Because the anger first off says something is not right and no empire wants any subjects talking that way. Caesar does not want anyone talking about how Rome is not really bringing about peace, they're bringing about war. If I, we go down the list, the Assyrian Empire, their ideology was if we stop conquering other nations, the world will end. Right? So if people start saying something's not right about conquering other nations, <laughs> they don't want people talking like that. 
Babylonian, the Babylonian ideology was Nebuchadnezzar is God's gardener and, God, and under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, all nations will flourish. And so that was the ideology that covered up all the violence of Babylon. And so people don't want anyone talking about how maybe, maybe Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have that much of a green thumb, you know? Um, so, and so that's, that's the thing in America is to say that if we are upset, then maybe America is not all that it has purported itself to be. So they don't want for us accessing, they don't want anyone listening to our anger. And furthermore, if we can trace our anger down to what ought to be, the, the folks who are, the folks who benefit most from the status quo know that that will bring an end to the world that, as they know it, right? So I think for all those reasons, I've, you know, I started to really embrace the anger that I felt. Yeah, and that, I mean that, what you just said of, of even not allowing people to hold that anger long enough to dig deeper underneath it, yeah. you know, to say, well, get over it, move on, right. whatever, then, then you never actually get to cultivate the, the real energy underneath that. Yeah, that's that's powerful. Um, I mean, you ever had a relationship with someone, it could boss, friend, whatever, and it's like, I don't want to talk about the yeah, way yeah. that my actions affect you. Yeah. Because then that means I might have to change. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> that's living in America. Yeah. And then, and then, so so you know, bringing this conversation up. Um, you know, like the way that you you embodied in your art and your expression of keeping the conversation present for people, not just whenever the news cycle has another killing that hits, you know, the, the national news. Um, how was that received? How did that? How did how did being in that conversation day in and day out shape kind of how you began to look at? Um, the, the power of, of, of that being constantly in front of people rather than just, you know, the blip whenever, you know, there's another police killing. Yeah, you know, um, when, Philando when Philando Castile was killed, you know, America watched him bleed to death in front of his girlfriend, in front of his four-year-old daughter, and that was the day that I, I decided, I made three commitments to myself that day. And one of them was that I would no longer let the news cycle decide when I was talking about racism. Because it's like, let's say you have a cold, right? Or COVID now. How long are you going to try to bolster your immune system and flush this virus out of your system? The first day? The first 32 hours, the first 40, you're going you're gonna to do that until you're well again, right? And so at the time, I still thought racism was a bug in the system. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can't just talk about this when the news cycle stirs up mass outrage. America is sick which means that we have to try to flush this thing out of our system every day. And so I did, I started writing on Facebook and 
you know, social media about it every day, sharing things that I was finding as I was studying. Um, I've been writing songs since I was nine years old, but around that time I said, okay, I'm gonna write songs about this. Um, you know, just using every gift that I have, every resource that I have to try to raise awareness about this. Now, we live in a society where most people think that everything that they encounter is meant for their enjoyment or entertainment. So there's a part of that, you know, so predictably, some of that response was, oh, I don't like this. I don't enjoy this. I'm getting tired of you talking about this. And I'm like, well, I'm getting tired of experiencing this. So if you would like, if you would like to stop hearing about this, you can unfollow, right? Or stop listening, but I'm not going to stop speaking about it. Um, something changed with the way that yeah, okay, so there were two things that changed, right? So that was one response. The other response was people who had been in my life for a long time feeling like that gave them leverage to basically just tell me to shut up, right? So I remember one, one, one woman that was a part of the children's church that I was in when I was like nine or whatever, magically appearing on Facebook to tell me that I, she was so disappointed with me that I was saying that America was this racist country that needed to change. And I explained to her, I am no longer nine years old. I don't care <laughs> if you're disappointed with me. When was the last time I even heard your name? The fact that you are disappointed, to, disappointed in me has no bearing in the rate at which black civilians are being killed by the police in this country. You know, and those kinds of encounters are the kinds are uh, I write about a, a few of those encounters in the book. It was really interesting too. I was in full. I was at Fuller Seminary where you you and I were there um, around the same time, and <clears throat> I remember one of my friends, one of my closest friends at Fuller Seminary. Actually, I remember we fell out because. I don't even remember how this, ha I don't even know why this came up. Well, but he just, he just decided that he wanted to defend, you know, slavery as like, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea or whatever. Like to my face, just talking to me about slavery, like I would have no personal <laughs> feelings about that. <laughs> like if we were to go back in time in a time machine, we could be having this conversation and I wouldn't be in chains and he wouldn't be living in the big house, you know? And so there were strange encounters like that, you know, people coming out the woodwork saying, you shouldn't be talking like this. Now, in hindsight, from here, I can look back and say, like I said about myself, you're challenging a fundamentally held belief. So these people hearing me in that moment can't tell the difference between me telling them that America has a radical problem and being chased by a bear in the woods. So that's how they're responding, right? And then you had other people who felt like, God, thank God somebody's saying this. You know, it seemed like there were a lot of people who felt like I had found a way to express things that they felt but couldn't find the words for, right? Um, and I think those are probably like the biggest ones. But I think maybe the, the thing that 
I would be remiss for not saying it's just I lost a lot of dear friendships during that time. People I considered family, people I considered some of my best friends, you know, because <clears throat> I think that there is all of this baggage, all of this rhetorical baggage, political baggage to this conversation, you know. I entered this conversation not as someone who identifies on any particular part of the political spectrum, just as someone who has an experience living in a black body in this country, right? And also at the time, you know, feeling very, very committed to my identity as a Christian, which I understood as that loyalty is above any kingdom on earth. Right. You know, you, you know, so I should be able to say this country was founded on genocide and exploitation and enslavement and is unjustifiable and get an amen. You know, that's that's how I'm feeling at the time. You know, like, you know, you look at the Bible and even the prophets, you know, like one of my favorite uh, characters. I mean, the prophets are my favorite characters in, in the Bible, but one of them is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has this struggle where he's trying to tell these he's trying to tell his compatriots that, yeah, you know, God's really not happy about the way we've been treating poor people. And because of that, like, we're going into exile in Babylon. And they're like, how could you say something so unpatriotic? That's their response. They say, oh, but the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah's like, yeah, it's going to get destroyed. They're going to pull those pillars out from under and the roof's going to come down and everything and you're all going to get Babylonian names, right? And they're upset with Jeremiah because, not because... Yeah, they're upset because they feel like it's, it's unpatriotic to say, right? And that's what was happening. And especially some of the response from, you know, I went to Bible college. I got a, I got a degree in practical theology from Southeastern University. I went to Fuller Seminary and got another degree in theology, like a dummy. <laughs> like, if I'd known the second degree was going to be so much like the first degree, I'd have done something else. You know? And so I had a lot of folks, you know, from these Christian places, you know, that I passed through for the church I grew up in, from Southeastern University, from Fuller, who were basically trying to tell me that what I'm talking about has nothing to do with Christian faith, with, with the gospel. And so those were like some of the, the, the big responses that I, that I got when I started talking about this stuff every day. Well, and I, was, I was thinking, because uh, you do have a chapter kind of devoted to um, your spirituality in the midst of all this, and that also gets kind of messed up and, and thrown around. And so, but you also do this... I think really interesting thing where you, you say, okay, there's parts of this and parts of my understanding of like what it means to be patriotic. Yeah. I leave some of that behind and then some of it I reclaim, yeah. you know, and, and I noticed you do the same thing with your, with your spiritual life. And so I, I, I'm interested in talking or having you talk through like, what were the parts that were like, I can't keep this, you know, in your faith. Yeah. And then, and then what parts, you know, actually help to, kind of take you through, or maybe you discovered on the other side, or, or you know, I, I just exploring some of, some of that. Before I say anything about that, I just wanted to say, 
that I think that some of you are going to be unhappy with this response. <laughs> and, and I want to say to you that I'm not telling you what to believe, but it's a core value of mine to try to be honest, right? And so there were things with my faith that I just couldn't hold together anymore. And it took a lot of searching and praying and, you know, to try. And I remember one of my, <clears throat> so I went to Fuller to become an Old Testament professor. I was like, you know, music's not really working out. <laughs> I'm a teach Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really did. I really do love, I really do love the Hebrew Bible. And so I was in uh, Christopher Hayes' ancient Near Eastern class, the history and culture of the ancient Near East. And so because of that, you know, Dr. Hayes and I had this relationship. And so he saw me going through all of this and he sent me a message and he told me that I needed to read the theologians who were writing about the Holocaust and how they were wrestling with the fact that in their tradition, they're supposed to be God's chosen people, and yet this happened, right? And I remember listening to a sermon. I wish I could remember the name of it right now and the rabbi's name. <laughs> it, it, it'll probably come back to me in a little bit. But he was talking, basically trying to answer the question like, why is it that God allows these atrocities, these tragedies to happen? And this was obviously relevant to me because I, this is the heyday of the Black Lives Matter movement. So it feels like every other week, I'm hearing about another unarmed civilian being killed by the police. And this is exactly what I'm wrestling with is, I grew up singing songs about how God intervenes, right? That those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I did not take that figuratively, you know? Um, I really believed that God intervenes, God saves. So I was really wrestling with how can God be powerful enough to save Mike Brown but choose not to? How can God be good enough to save Mike Brown, but choose not to? How could God know that this was going to happen to Mike Brown, be powerful enough to stop it, be good enough to stop it, and not do so, right? <clears throat> and so, <laughs> spoiler, I don't have an answer to that question. Um, <laughs> you know, but I did realize that the people who wrote the, the Bible that we have did not have all of the later theological formulations that we take as givens as Christians, right? So especially the writers of the Hebrew Bible did not necessarily believe that God was all-knowing, all-powerful, all good, you know, like, like we do. I said this answer was not going to be pleasing to everybody. 
um, and that was enough for them, right? Like there were, there were some people, writers of the Old Testament, who did not believe that God knew everything, and that was enough for them, though. Like they could still worship that God. That, um, that God, you know, you, you, you get what I'm saying? And so that was challenging for me. And so for me, it had to be that I was no longer going to try to answer that question, right? What I was going to do was hold on to the fact that throughout my life, I have prayed to God and I do believe that God has answered me. And that's all that I know. And there have been times that I've asked God for things that I think are completely reasonable and God has not granted them. And I'm going to accept that too. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend any more mental energy trying to put those two things together. The other way that my face, the way that my faith changed was, I think before 2016, I was a little bit afraid of liberation theology. Because like it, getting my first theology degree, they talked about liberation theology like Mufasa talks about the elephant's graveyard to Simba and the Lion King. That's don't joke over there. That, that, what, what about that shit? Everything the light touches is legitimate theology. What's that shadowy part over there? That's liberation theology. Simba, never go there, right? Um, and I found myself, I found myself coming to conclusions that I would f later find out that plenty of people had already written very... <laughs> sophisticated theological books about, right? So like I'm looking, because I remember the day that I felt like I just can't be a Christian because I was like, I think Christianity is for white people. Now I've defended Christianity from the, from the epithet of being the white man's religion for all of my life. But in this day, I was an atheist for like 15 minutes, you know, because I was like, I, I'm putting this together. I'm putting this story together. Like, you know, one of the first slave ships was named Jesus. They put Jesus's name on the side of one of these slave ships, right? There's been so much damaging theology that has been used to legitimate this global system of militant profit making that is justified by the lies of race. And I just could not put it together. I was like, oh my gosh. I think, I think Christianity is, is for white people. And in that moment, I remembered that in the Exodus story, it was the, it, I didn't even get into the whole thing. It was just the, the plague of darkness, right? Because the big thing at the time was white people saying like, well, I never owned any slaves. So what does this have to do with me, <laughs> right? And you never were a slave. So what does it have to do with you? <laughs> Right? So I remembered, so there's this very individualistic argument that they would make to say that systemic, systemic racism is not a thing. And even if it is, God doesn't deal with that. God deals with the individual heart and with the soul. And that's what God is, that's what God cares about. So I, in this moment where I'm like, I think that God, Christianity is for white people. And that means, and I'm not going to church, mind you, this is like Sunday morning and I have to be like across town to lead worship at a church. <laughs> and if I'm going to be on time, I should have left 15 minutes ago. So <laughs> I've got to like really figure this out <laughs> this morning. 
And um, the Exodus story comes to mind, but just the plague of darkness. Because during the plague of darkness, all of Egypt is dark, except for Goshen. But there's only one Egyptian in this story that, wants, that we know of that wants the Israelites to be slaves, Pharaoh. But all Egyptians have to deal with three days of corporeal darkness. And as I thought about that, I just turned that over in my head and I went, wow. Yeah, because what does it mean to be innocent in a society that where everyone benefits from, profits from the exploitation and oppression of a people group and everybody knows it? <clears throat> and that was the beginning of me putting together that even though there are Christian traditions that want to say the Exodus story is really just about getting the people from whom Jesus would come out of Egypt, which is an argument that someone made to me, or that the Exodus story is just this, you know, they can spiritualize it, they can personalize it, you know, make it, but it was the beginning of me understanding something that I had read years before, but this in, in the Hebrew Bible, when they talk about salvation, the word, yasha, literally means to take someone from a confined place and to put them in a wide open space. And in the Exodus story, salvation looks like getting Israelite bodies out of the brickyards where those bodies are being broken, walking those bodies through the Red Sea, walking those bodies into Canaan, right? When, when God says to Moses, like in the burning bush, it's not just like, hey man, you need to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh, do some cool tricks and lead, lead people through the Red Sea. No, like he says, I have heard the cry of my people because of their oppressors. That's what, it, that's what it says in the text in Exodus 3-7. I've heard the cry of my people because of their oppressors, and I have come down to rescue them. And it's profound to me to think, it became profound to me to think about that. Not only does God say, I see the systemic oppression that these people were under because it was systemic. Their history was erased. They were put into forced labor. You know, there was a system of where the word, even the word Hebrew, like, or the word that we get the word Hebrew from wasn't even really like a racial, it I mean, definitely wasn't a racial word because like the word racism was invented in like 1938. So like we don't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a racial understanding. It wasn't an ethnic marker. It was a social category of like vagabonds and crooks and you know, like the, the outliers of society, right? So, they were, God says in this passage, I see this systemic oppression they're going through and I see the people who are doing it to them as well, <laughs> right? And I, I intend to do something about it and that began to shift my theology in a way to where I wasn't afraid of liberation theology anymore. So like now I'm reading James Cone's God of the Oppressed and Black Power and Black Liberation and uh, a Black theology of liberation and I'm understanding, uh, like I'm getting where he's coming from, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I start reading, I start reading scripture 
um, and seeing like the historical context coming to life even more. I've been talking about this for a while, but there's one thing I just want to drop in there. It's like, you can even just start with Genesis 1, you know, and see that like this passage, the first passage in the Bible, definitely not a science, just definitely not a science lesson. That chapter says the sky is solid and we know the sky is not solid, right? Um, but we do know that the only people known to be made in the image of God in the ancient Near East were kings like Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruling at the time when this passage was, was written, right? And at the end of this passage, it says that all human beings are created in the image of God. So what does this say about the legitimacy of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, right? So like you see, like when you start looking at the historical context of things and saying, oh man, this is all, so much of this is protest literature. <laughs> Why is it so angry? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. so that was a that was a big shift too. So like a lot less certainty on some of the things that I grew up believing, and seeing the so the social political context of faith more. And the thing that I had to one thing I had to really let go of were the notions of Christian supremacy that we can be given even as marginalized people and persecuted people and oppressed people. You know, I remember when you, when you be, at least the best case scenario is you start looking into your own suffering, see how it's connected to the collective suffering of other people and see how that collective suffering of that community is connected to the collective suffering of other communities, right? That's the best case scenario. The worst case, the worst case scenario is you become the next dictator. Um, but yeah, it's my turn to be the oppressor. But so I say that to say that that was happening for me was seeing how the collective suffering of black people was connected to the suffering of other communities. And so I remember at that time, for some reason, like all, I think Rob Bell, a popular Christian author, theologian, had said something about believing that God affirms LGBTQ people. And so that made all the churches in around Pasadena, not all, but you know, the the churches the churches in this particular tradition decide that they needed to have a Sunday where they preached against homosexuality. And I remember that being a huge struggle for me sitting there because at, by then I realized like, yeah, I just don't wanna be involved in the oppression of any other people. I don't wanna be involved in the ostracization of other people, the marginalization of other people, the harm of other groups of people. You know, before then I was like, I don't really know how God feels about this or that or the other. And I just felt like me and God were not on the same page for a while, right? I just felt like, I, I don't know. I, I know the people that are telling me the scripture says this. And if that's how God feels about it, we disagree, <laughs> you know? But, at, but by that time, I was like, I can't be a part of that, right? And so part of it, that was another part of it is moving. Another, another thing I realized about that particular Sunday, I was, I was sitting here listening to this pastor stand on stage and make his argument about why no one should be gay. And all I could think about was how quiet it is in outer space. I was like, 
this guy really thinks that this sermon means something. <laughs> because you're telling me about how the universe is arranged and how things are supposed to be, but the universe is like three, 13 billion light years wide. It doesn't even notice that this, it doesn't even notice that this discourse is happening. And so I remember like coming, like coming out on the other side of the spirituality conversation of feeling like I can't be a supremacist in the name of Jesus. I can't answer questions about why God does or doesn't do what things are. And I do believe that God is bigger than what I've been taught. I remember feeling that as well, realizing that a part of systemic racism, you know, what is the system in systemic racism? It's colonization, <laughs> you know. So the colonial system was ripping indigenous people of, you know, forbidding their languages and outlawing their religious practices and demonizing their spiritual beliefs and all of that. And some of that has also been a part of my journey of asking the question, what do I believe is wrong or not of God because somebody tried to make sure that my ancestors were severed from their sources of spiritual power? You know, so it's like, I'm not going to start practicing Obeya or anything like that. Obeya is like the Jamaican version of voodoo. I'm not going to start practicing Obeya because one of my uncles went crazy trying to practice Obeya. He disappeared in the woods and we never saw him again, you know. But those are some of the ways it opened up. Yeah, and, you know, I think what I, what I really kind of picked up in the book, too, is that once you see and you can't unsee, and you begin noticing it in other places. Well, now there's this kind of crisis of, well, like, how am I gonna move forward yes. in that reality? And so you find like hope and joy as, as means of endurance yeah. and meaning making. And so I'm just interested in, in how you end up, um, like what that looks like, how that's, how that's lived in these kind of creative troublemaking, um, you know, memory-making ways that you, you know, use who you are in this reality to, to live your life kind of guided by all this reality now. I'm going to try not to give you all six points on this one, so. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have questions, too, and so I, I got to ask mine, so start thinking of yours, and too. And lives. Yeah, like, well, I got, I'm sure you got stuff We to are do. having a little reception. There's wine and there's <laughs> snacks and stuff, so, yeah, hang on. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is, so I will say this. I talk about this apocalyptic awakening in this book, and it's this unveiling. And when you read, if you read the, actual, the, the most popular apocalypse that we have in the Bible, it's scary, right? Like you're seeing monsters and dragons and all this stuff in there, and all of that has political significance. <clears throat> and it can be that way too, learning about our world. And if you're not careful you kind of can live with these apocalyptic goggles on where everything is ugly and everything, you know, is, you know, you know, like when you watch The Matrix, the first one, the only good one, <laughs> and, and, and the real world in The Matrix, the sky is scorched and black and they, they eat 
whatever they were serving Oliver Twist on the on the Nebuchadnezzar and all that kind of stuff. It's just goop, right? And everyone's clothes are handmade and neutral colors. You know, it's like, it's just terrible. And you can go through the world that way, right? Where everything is problematic and the world is fundamentally bad. And that I have learned since writing the book is it, it, it not only makes you a wet sandwich, it also like wears you down on the inside because, you know, there's an issue of like chronic stress, right? That doctors are talking about and the overexposure to chronic stress causes your body cells to age faster. It can cause chronic disease. It causes early death. And so it's one thing to be woke, right? It's another thing to just give in to the brain's negativity bias, right? And so I had to, I didn't know this when I was writing the book, but I was feeling it because all these things I was learning about America and learning about the roots of things, it's like, listen, don't tell me how popsicles are racist. I know somehow they're racist. Just don't tell me, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, just everything you can find some way to, to, to connect it to, to connect it to some atrocity, right? And I was just feeling so depressed, so down. And one of my friends saw this happening to me and he sent me a book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark. And I remember reading that book and her perspective on hope. It set off a light bulb and it made me realize I need to always be reading about hope. So that was the first thing that I started doing. I started ordering books about hope and just reading people who care about justice, who have fought for justice and their reflections on hope. Now, I understand that the first terrain of oppression is your own body. The first place that you experience the, the effects of oppression is here. Which means it's also the first place that you can experience liberation in a very personal way. And so I've been dedicating my own self to learning about well-being. So when we talk about a way to move forward, it's me, learn, it's me really embracing the fact that if I did nothing else but to make sure that I experience the beauty of this world, that I experience joy in my body, that would be a legitimate act of resistance enough. Because the point of building this anti-black system is that I would not thrive. Now, I'm not going to do it just to, you know, spit on Thomas Jefferson's grave because I don't want everything that I do to be in relation to the oppression, you know? But I'm going to do it, right? And it, it reminds me of a quote from Asada Shakur. 
She said, in spite of oppression, the world is a beautiful place. And I think that is the perspective that we have to have. You know, when I, you know, I study revolutions. Some of my, some of my mentors have toppled dictators in other countries. That's, that's what I do. I, once I started trying to learn about social change, it's so thrilling, it's so exciting, it's so hope-inducing that I couldn't stop. And one thing that I notice about people who decide to not only confront the powers that be, but thrive in spite of the machinations of their oppressors is that <clears throat> they do not forfeit their right to enjoy their lives as human beings. They don't forfeit I want to say a normal life, you know? Even when you read C.L.R. James about the Haitian Revolution, you notice that a part of that revolutionary spirit, that drive, was these enslaved people continuing to go into the woods and sing and make music together and uh, commune together. So I think the way forward is to continue to hold these two things together. And these two things that I'm talking about are resilience and revolution. Resilience or well-being is the foundation of all resistance work. I keep asking, what would it be like if empire had to contend with people who were spiritually strong? Because this system wants for us to be worn down, distracted. It wants for us to lack vitality, right? And people who lack vitality are only going to be able to put up a certain kind of fight. So it's the foundation of all resistance. But it's also the end goal of it, too. Well-being is also the, it is the means, it is the end, right? You know? Because you are fighting for a world in which everyone can be well. And so I have, I have begun to center my own well-being and centering the well-being of others. And the last thing I want to say about that, maybe it was three points, maybe it wasn't six, <laughs> is that I see that an inattention to this well-being and putting this at the center of what we do, I think that that weakens the movements that we have that are fighting for social justice. When we marginalize this, you know, when we don't pay attention to this, not only because of the lacking of vitality, but because if we're not healing while we're pursuing a new world, we are at risk of becoming the things that we're fighting, you know? And I've seen that, you know, as in some of my own organizing where, you know, someone is being abusive to other activists and I confront them about it, they tell me, this is a dictatorship. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I, I thought that's what we were fighting, you know? Well, and yeah, thank, thank you, Andre. I, I, I think one of the things that also comes out in the book is how, um, you know, there's, you discover surprising community 
beyond. You know, you leave people behind, but you discover there's, there's others out there. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've got some folks here who have been uh, listening and absorbing and probably bubbling up with something to ask. And so I want to engage our community as well. Um, so um, this mic is wireless, so I can come to you. So if you've got a question that you'd like Andre to kind of, you know, uh, imagine with you on, um, raise your hand and, and I'll let you ask it. I'm first. First, thank you for your insights. And uh, you've had a lot of experiences of racism. How do they differ uh, from location to location? And as a immigrant, as my family is an immigrant to the United States, um, you know, how does that all play into everything with your conclusions? Yeah, you know. I would say every place has their own style. <laughs> they have their own style of racism. Um, like I mentioned, you know, in New York, um, I was denied an apartment for being black. Taxi drivers would just yell out the window, I'm not going to Brooklyn. I didn't live in Brooklyn, <laughs> you know. Um, I think what I noticed in New York that was different from Stone Mountain was I lived in Harlem. And when I got to Harlem, you would see just how occupied this place was. Like there are all these, the police with their big guns and the dogs and the towers on, you know, and on every few blocks and stuff like that. The only place that looked as occupied as Harlem with police presence was Ground Zero. <laughs> you know? And that's what, racism looked like in New York City while I was there. It looked different in the South. You know, it looked different in Stone Mountain because it wasn't that I saw the police everywhere in Stone Mountain, but I know that there wasn't a grocery store in my neighborhood. I know that the place was run down, you know, like the food deserts and all that kind of stuff, you know. I know that when we moved into our up went into our neighborhood in Stone Mountain because my family is from Jamaica. So when we moved into Stone Mountain, they were a part of an influx of Jamaican and Caribbean immigrants in the 1980s. So we move into our neighborhood. We're the first black people in that particular neighborhood. All the white people start moving out. They start putting up Confederate flags all around the neighborhood. Now, we don't know what the Confederate flag is because we're from Jamaica. So we just put up the Jamaican flag. <laughs> and all these other Caribbean immigrants start putting up their flags. But that's what it looked like in Stone Mountain. Out here in L.A., I lived in Pasadena for a long time. I know that you rarely see any Pasadena. You, you rarely see, a, you don't see a lot of black Pasadenans in what they call Old Town Pasadena. You don't see a lot of us down there. And in fact, when I was at Fuller for the first couple of years, I wondered where do the black people live? They live up there in Northwest Pasadena where it's been redlined. There's a history of redlining over there, you know? And Northwest Pasadena is nowhere near, nowhere near as nice as 
Old Pasadena or whatever you call that area of full, where Fuller is and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> There's a lack of investment over there, you know. So I think a lot of it depends on the history of that region. I mean, I just got back from South America as well. What was that, Friday? Thursday? Thursday. I just got back from South America, you know, and so I can tell you in Medellin, where I was getting my, my teeth replaced, you know, you don't see a lot of, if you walked around Medellin, you would wonder if black people live there at all, you know? But there was an event while I was there that was all about the history of Afro-Colombians. And it was held in one of the barrios where most of the Afro-Colombians live. And when the taxi driver was taking me over there, I said, you know, I've never been to this neighborhood. And he said, yeah, you know, it lacks a lot of resources over here. And you can tell, you know. It, so, I mean, I remember, and while I was there, my friend Johnny, we had went out on my last night there to get something to drink, and the police had been going up and down the street making sure that no street vendors could sell anything. They'd been doing that for the past few days. And it seemed like they followed Johnny to dinner. You're just standing over there. There's one police officer just standing. Like, I'm sitting here, Johnny's standing here. There's the police officer here, the police officer here, the police officer here. And this police officer has been following Johnny around for weeks. Every time that Johnny tries to sell something, he takes Johnny's a black Venezuelan. And there's a lot of tension between Colombians and Venezuelans right now in general, but especially a dark-skinned Venezuelan. I look over at this police officer, and we're, this is all in Spanish because almost someone speaks English. I'm just like, hi. <laughs> How you doing? Can I help you with something? <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, that started a conversation between Johnny and I, and um, there was another friend there named Dianara, and the three of us started talking. Dianara is also, she's black too. That, we all start talking about how how the police treat a darker-skinned Venezuelan versus a lighter-skinned Venezuelan in that way. So I, I would say that, you know, there's a different style for every place. And I think that for immigrants, you know, in America, with my family as an example, sometimes it's hard for some of the immigrant communities to understand the depth of the racial history in America because we come in benefiting from the victories that have already been won before we got here. Like, my father didn't experience Jim Crow. My mother didn't experience Jim Crow. They were in Jamaica. Now, they were living in the colony of Jamaica because Jamaica did not get its independence until 1962. So they understand that form of white supremacy dominating the island but they don't understand, you know, the animosity that people can have toward black Americans here because Jamaica's 95% black, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, it's nuanced. And I think that that is a really important question. I think that a book that has recently helped me think through this as well is called what is anti-racism and why it means anti-capitalism? Because there are, 
there's this overlap of those systems, I guess you could say. And I don't think I want to say it that way. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the structure of racism has something to do with the structure of capitalism. That's what I want to say. Anybody else? Yeah. Where, uh, where are we going in the next uh, five, 10 years? What, what would you, uh, where do you think, what's gonna happen in, uh, in race relations and in this country? Yeah. I mean, I'm not much of a fortune teller, but um, I will say this, that throughout history we have seen that usually uprisings for racial justice are followed by fascist counter-revolutions. You see this after the Civil War, where, or after the end of Reconstruction, actually, where black people are starting to flourish. There is this political game about getting, the, getting a certain president into office, and they make this deal to basically dismantle Reconstruction. But a part of that is the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in my hometown. There's one historian that says that fascism was, fu was functionally invented in the United States with the establishment of the Ku Klux Klan. So this is one of those patterns of, of fascist counter-revolution that we see to black progress happening in the US back then. Some of these, we know that those uh, Confederate monuments, even the largest Confederate monument in the country and fun fact, largest bas relief carving in the world, the Confederate statues on Stone Mountain, are, those, those projects actually were undertaken as responses to black progress in the US. So they weren't even constructed like at near the time of the Civil War or something like that to commemorate soldiers. It was literally just, okay, seems like black people are progressing. We better make sure that they know what kind of country this is. We saw this after the Civil Rights Movement where the government started pouring millions of dollars into militarizing the police and changing laws to criminalize protests. And now we're seeing it again in response to the 2020 uprisings that spanned the globe for Black Lives Matter. Um, the anxiety about the great, great, great replacement is on the rise. Uh, leaders like Trump are gaining in popularity. Dr. King said something interesting in his book, which is funny because your question was, where are we going? And it's in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Where he said that white America had always, already proven that it was willing to throw away democracy altogether and implement a native form of fascism. So that's where we are now, I think, is we have been experiencing a fascist counter-revolution to the successes and the gains and shifts of common sense of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, what happens from here, I don't know. But I hope, my hope, is that people will learn from the movements that have come before us and understand that when we talk about a fight for social justice, it actually is a fight. 
you give blows, you take blows, right? And that people won't be discouraged because what I hear people saying right now are things like, well, if Donald Trump wins the next election, we'll never vote again. And I'm like, y'all think fascism is new. Well, when the word fascism was new, because the dynamic we're talking about is much older than the word, black people in America were already saying, we know it. Langston Hughes, actually, the, the great poet, was at the International Writers Conference, and he said, black Americans don't need to be told what fascism is. We know. That's what he said. And so what I hope is that people will understand that these boogeymen are old. We have fought them before to some degree of success. And what we need to continue to do is learning from the wisdom of those who have come before us and fought these boogeymen, right? I think that there will be more, there will definitely be more uprisings because what is happening right now, especially with what's going on in Palestine right now, is that the global system of militant profit making that racism is meant to justify is continuing to be unveiled. And the more that the powers that be continue down, because here's the problem that oppressors make, and Walter Brueggemann talks about this in the prophetic imagination. Oppressors think that yesterday will, no, yesterday, okay. Oppressors think that tomorrow will continue to be like yesterday. They can't imagine that the ground is shifting beneath them. And so they continue to lie to the public. They continue to believe that the public will continue to believe that we are powerless. But those days are gone. Those days are gone. We have social media. We have stronger networks. We have, we have experience fighting the power together through collective action. I think that the uprisings for justice are going to continue to get stronger. I have a friend named Mike. He's the smartest guy I know. Oh my gosh, sometimes I call him the architect because he's just, he just knows too much. He's telling me the other day about, the pow about fusion power. And he's, Ani, were you there when he was talking about? Yeah, you were there, yeah, this is crazy. So, <laughs> He's talking about fusion power, and he's talking about how, was it, I, okay, first off, he's the smartest guy that I know. I am not, so I can't explain this the way that he did. But he talked about how, like, one, like a thimble full of fusion power could power all of Los Angeles. And he was telling us about this to say that this technology, like there are already scientists and people working on this, working, working on it, and they're not coming at this from a capitalist perspective. There is no way to put a patent on this. It is no one's intellectual property. It will not be anyone's intellectual property, right? So many people right now are experiencing political despair because we've seen that the official political channels do not work for the things that they say that they're supposed to.
And protest has not been working the way that we expected. Gen Z is demoralized because they're looking down, because they're not just looking at fighting injustice, they're looking at avoiding extinction. And so Mike is talking to me about this thimble of fusion power that could power a city as big as Los Angeles. And he said, he was telling me that just in the cycle of what civilizations go through is that we're going to go through this dark time, but we will swing back toward a sense of optimism and collaboration just at the time when this power is going to be ready. And that gave me a, that gave me a lot of hope, you know. I'm like, I hope that you're right, you know. So I mean, that's what that's what I think. I think that the last thing I want to say about this is that I genuinely believe that the worse things get, the higher the probability that we'll be able to see more clearly, and it the higher the possibility that it will strengthen our resolve to seek the world that we believe that ought to be. So I don't think that there's a straight path from here to a racially just world, but I do believe that regardless of how hard those who are invested in this status quo to endure, it's just not tenable, it's not possible. I don't believe that people are going to allow that to happen. Well, so I hope that the conversation we have tonight spurs your imagination to imagine what tomorrow might be in a way that would upset those who lack that imagination. Um, we are. We have uh, a little reception out in the foyer. Uh, we've got books to sell, autographs to get, questions to ask that might be, you know, in a group setting you're you're too shy to ask. Um, but I, I do want to say thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for being a great audience and listening. Um, and I know that that the work that you are up to, uh, as I look and recognize a couple of y'all, um, that it matters so much. Um, and so so. As Andre said, you know, the, the causes of justice overlap so much that we see one wrong and we begin to notice it everywhere. And I hope that that then spurs us to say, but I can work actions of resistance, of joy, and of hope. And so thank you for coming out. Um, like I said, there's stuff in the back, so stick around, hang out, meet each other. Let's hear it for Andre.